episode number 28. Welcome back. This is the Expected Returns Podcast. My name is Stephen Lutman. I'm a real estate investor and agent here in the capital region of New York State. There's a lot going on in the world of real estate right now, so a ton of content for us to get to. However, before we jump in, one item to bring to your attention. I did have an article published in the Saratoga Business Journal, Glens Falls Business Journal. This would be in their October issue. If you're local, you can find this in convenience stores, some of the smaller banks, fast food restaurants, takeout restaurants. It is 100% free. If you are not local and you still want to check it out, you can visit saratoga.com slash Saratoga Business Journal. And you'll find a number of articles there, one of which, uh, one of the more recent ones being written by myself. Topics covered were commercial real estate, specifically some impending, we'll call it doom, downside to the industry that might be uh, on the horizon. So again, if you do want to check that out locally, you can find it at some of the local banks, takeout restaurants. And if you are not local and you want the online edition, saratoga.com slash Saratoga Business Journal. That should get the job done. I'll also include the link in the show notes for today's episode. That's it for the intro. Let's get into the episode. Where I want to start today is with a conversation about supervision. Now, this past week marked the end of the NFL trading deadline, the point in the football season where teams can no longer swap players and draft picks amongst each other. It's typically a team's general manager who heads up player personnel. And what you'll often see is if a team is having a strong year, they might look to bring in a player or two to help make a push for the playoffs. And conversely, if a team is underperforming, they might say, you know what, it's just not our year. Let's trade away our veteran players, bring in some draft picks, look to the future. What's interesting is that what's best for the team is not necessarily what's best for the general manager. And what I mean by that is that the average lifespan for a GM in the NFL is right around four years. So you can easily see how this person could say, the heck with the future. I might not even be here. I need wins today. That's how I'm judged. So draft picks, get them out the door. Young players to develop, don't care. I need players that can get me wins today. What's a good decision in the short term can be terrible when looking at the long-term health of an organization. Which brings me to the Treasury's announcement this past week that they're going to be auctioning off $112 billion worth of bonds simply to repay maturing debt. And this comes immediately on the heels of their previous announcement that the 2023 United States deficit came in at $1.7 trillion, which when you strip away COVID years of 20 and 21 is by far the largest shortfall we've had as a country ever. So two things are happening here. We have old debt that we've taken on that is now maturing. And instead of paying that debt off, we're just issuing new debt to pay it off. So essentially, we're paying off a credit card by opening up a new credit card and doing a cash advance to pay off the old credit card. On top of that, we're also needing to bring in new debt to pay on the deficit we're taking on for 2023. There are a lot of reasons why deficits are bad for a country. We've touched on some of them in the past, but for today's episode, we're going to tackle it strictly from a perspective of mortgage rates and the real estate industry. When our expenses as a country are greater than revenues, we have to make up the difference somehow. And how we do that is issuing new debt. Now, in order for issuing new debt to work, to quote unquote, solve the problem, there needs to be a buyer of this debt. And as we know, year by year, we're issuing more and more of this. Eventually, all marketplaces, when you constantly increase the supply, what happens, the marketplace gets oversaturated with a product. And it's this oversaturation that causes prices to fall. I want you to imagine for an example, 
you want to buy donuts and I'm here to sell you donuts and you're interested in buying a dozen donuts. And I show up and say, I'm happy to sell you donuts, but I'm not going to sell you a dozen donuts. I have a million donuts I want you to buy and you got to buy them all. The price that you're willing to pay for those donuts is going to fall because you're not necessarily looking for a million donuts. You only wanted a dozen, but I have a lot of donuts I need to get rid of. The price is going to come down to reflect the price that I need to get a lot of donuts out the door. The more pressure you put on yields, historically, it's going to impact mortgage rates. So the 10-year treasury and the 30-year mortgage rate historically move in lockstep. And the spread between the two is right around one and a half to two percentage points. So an example being, if the treasury today is right around 5%, mortgage rates historically would be two percentage points higher, right around seven. Now today, the spread's a little bit higher, but historically, it's right around one and a half to two percentage points. What this means is that by our government lavishly overspending year after year after year and driving up deficits, which then need to be funded by issuing new debt, it's actually making your home buying more expensive. Now, the issue here is in our football example, we had a team owner that was willing to step in and override the general manager because the team owner has more of a long-term perspective. We don't have that because we have politicians that need to continuously get reelected and we as citizens aren't pushing them to rein in spending because we don't want our programs cut and we don't want our taxes raised. So this is a situation where the problem is going to get continually worse and worse. The question that get posed is when you hear the news talk about, well, we need to make housing more affordable. How do we make the home buying process more affordable? Not enough people can afford houses right now. Well, a good first step would be government accountability when it comes to spending. Next up, a potential big change to the real estate industry. But first, a quick word from today's show sponsor, SJ Lincoln Realty, helping home buyers and sellers throughout the capital region. I've been a real estate investor for over a decade and operate the office here as the licensed broker. If you or a friend or family member has a real estate related need in the capital region, let's connect. Steven at sjlincoln.com is my email address, goes directly to me. Or you can book a call with me, Stephen, excuse me, sjlincoln.com slash book a call. That's the website. And you can schedule a phone or Zoom conversation with me. Again, Stephen at sjlincoln.com. My email address goes right to me. There's no middle people, no agents learning on the job, no receptionist to come between you and myself or sjlincoln.com slash book a call. That's it. Let's get back to the show. Next, we're going to pivot to a topic that's near and dear to my heart, and that's how I get paid. A massive court case came down this week from Kansas City that, if it stands, would significantly impact how homes are bought and sold in the United States. The National Association of Realtors, along with a few of the largest brokerage offices in the country, were found guilty of colluding to inflate commissions and must pay 260,000 home sellers in the states of Missouri, Kansas, and Illinois, $1.8 billion. Yikes. So what's happening here? When you hire me right now to sell your home, I charge a commission. I then take this commission and offer a portion of it to any agent that's able to bring us a buyer to the table. This is how real estate transactions have worked forever. What's at the center of the plaintiff's argument is that because buyers in this situation have no incentive to negotiate commissions because they aren't paying one, transaction costs are higher than they would be if you were to compare it to a dynamic where sellers paid seller's agents, buyers paid buyer's agents. Well, Steve, what's the big deal? Why don't sellers just negotiate commissions then? 
but they do. Here's the issue that they could run into. So let's say hypothetically, I charge 6% to sell your house and I offer half of that to any agent that's willing to bring us a buyer, 3% for me, 3% for them. But instead of charging 6%, you beat me down and you say, we're going to do it at 5%. So we agree on 5%. So two and a half for me, two and a half for any agent that can bring in the other buyer, except every other house on your street that's for sale is all offering a 3% commission. The concern here is that agents who are representing buyers could hypothetically, or in some cases do, steer their clients towards properties that pay a higher commission. So even though there's nothing wrong with your house, you might have the best house on the street, but you're not getting any showings because buyer's agents are directing their buyers to properties that pay a higher commission. That's not great. If this system were to be upended, are there any losers here? Well, unfortunately there are, and it's gonna be lower income folks. People of means, this is how it's going to play out. People with means, so people with money, are going to hire agents to represent them. Poorer folks who don't have a lot of excess savings are either A, going to step out of home buying entirely and just opt out, or B, they're going to continue buying a house, but they're going to do it without representation. If you look at what it costs to buy a house today, you have a down payment, you have closing costs, you have moving expenses. Now tack on thousands of dollars to hire an agent to represent you in the process. For a lot of people, it's just not tenable. So again, they're either going to opt out of the home buying process and just remain renters, or they're going to go it alone, which creates an ugly dynamic where rich people have representation, could be negotiating against someone of lower means who's just going it alone. That doesn't feel great, right? The outcome here is going to take years to shake out. It's going to be in courts for God knows how long. If it stands, it's hard to imagine that the National Association of Realtors, which is throughout the country, it's a big organization. It has one of the largest lobbying firms. I think it's the largest. It's hard to imagine that they remain in existence because they might have a lot of people lobbying for them, but I'll tell you what they don't have is a billion dollars. So, so if it stands at the end of the day, it's hard to imagine that NAR is going to be remaining in existence. If they get wiped out, someone else will come in. Ideally, it's going to be better. But if you think of how technology has impacted different industries over the years, I'm thinking of stockbrokers or travel agents. Real estate has really dug in its feet, fighting and resisting change. But the thing with change is eventually it catches up with you. And at the end of the day, it might be painful because there are going to be lesser agents. Because if people aren't hiring buyers agents, that's going to wipe out quite a few of my colleagues, let's say, and potentially myself. We'll see how it shakes out. But um, at the end of the day, it's exciting because change can be uncomfortable, but it also can be a great thing. And I'm interested to see where this could potentially move the real estate industry as a whole. And finally, we'll wrap up today with an edition of Life as a Landlord. Today's segment is going to focus on a video that's been making its way around social media this past week, was shared by a number of the real estate related accounts that I follow. The crux of the piece is that if you're a property owner who rents out to tenants and you have a long-term 100% occupancy rate, you're actually running a flawed business model. Sounds a little counterintuitive. You would think you would want your units rented as much as possible. Their thesis, I believe, is that you can't always be the most attractive option to everybody. And when no one is ever leaving your units, what that's saying is you're undervaluing your time, your skill set. You're not charging enough. And by not charging enough, you're neutering the potential scalability of your business and limiting what you can do in the future. Which brings me to a question that I get asked quite a bit, whether it's from clients or people potentially looking to become real estate investors. How much should I charge for my rentals? 
And the easy one is, well, how much can you charge is easy to figure out. You know, there's lots of resources out there we've covered before. Your Zillow's, your apartments.com, your Facebook marketplaces. You can see what um, similar rental properties are charging. You can see what your competition is doing. And you can kind of fine tune exactly what the market would bear for your specific unit. How much should you charge is a little bit different though. And this particular piece of content makes it seem like you want to be charging as much as humanly possible. There is a difference between max revenue and max rental amount. And what I mean by that is just because you charge more than let's say I do doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be making more than I do. Now, when it comes to pricing my units, when I have a vacancy, I'm typically going to look at the resources that we mentioned available before, and I'm going to come in a little bit light. And the reason I'm going to do that is because I want as many applications coming to me as possible. Finding the correct tenant, finding a great tenant is your most important job. You want to offer safe rentals. You want to make sure you're following all the laws. You want to make sure that you don't get sued, but you want to make sure that you're finding quality tenants. And when you slightly underprice the market, you're going to find yourself in a position where you have more applications come in. And ideally, you're going to be skillful enough where you can navigate through the different applications and figure out the, uh, the best possible solution for you to fill your vacancy. When it comes time for renewals, this is where it gets a little bit maybe more complicated. If let's say this is the first time that the renewal is coming up. So they've had 12 months of building a rapport between you and them. If they've demonstrated that they've been a great tenant, no nuisance phone calls, police haven't been called to the scene, everything, your know, rent's been paid on time. I'm happy to continue being slightly under market. I want to reward this person for making my life as pleasant as possible. If they've demonstrated an ability of protecting the property, they haven't caused damage, they're respectful of other people in the property, I wanna do what I can to make sure that they aren't exploring other options. I want that person to stay. If, however, during the past 12 months, they've been disrespectful to other people in the property, I've had to deal with police phone calls, or maybe they've been destructive to the property, then it becomes a, t a conversation of, okay, well, if I'm going to be spending additional time dealing with tenant-related matters, I need to be compensated for that. So not only am I going to be charging market rate, I'm probably going to be charging more. And if they decide at that point when the renewal reaches them, hey, this is no longer worth it for me to stay here, I'm okay with that. If that person wants to depart at that point, basically I've, I've priced it to them to where it's a wash for me. If they stay, they're paying above market, fine, I'll deal with the headaches. If they leave, I can find someone else that works too. So for, from my perspective, there's no real difference. But I, I think going back to the argument of charging max rental versus max revenue, by having great tenants, by having quality folks in your building and you're not having vacancies, that is max revenue, but it's not max rental amounts. So if someone could be charging more than me, but they're constantly having to deal with headaches, damage to property, that all decreases the amount of your yearly taken. So when it comes time to finding a great tenant for your building, again, my philosophy is you're going to be slightly under market, get as many applications in as you possibly can. And if someone demonstrates an ability of being a great person, you want to do what you can to keep them in your property. You're offering them a place to live. They're offering you a source of income. This isn't a dictatorship. It's a back and forth. It should be a mutually beneficial agreement. That's good. Let's hang on to that person. If on the other hand, you get someone that's not great, you wanted to adjust the rent accordingly to make sure that you're being compensated for your time. And if at that point they decide to leave, you know, so be it. So that's kind of where I land. Um, and hopefully you can find that useful as you go forward. That's going to be it for today's episode. Hopefully you got something out of this. If you do want to connect with me, my email address is steven at sjlincoln.com. Or you can reach me by scheduling a phone call, sjlincoln.com slash book a call. And that way you can set up a phone 
or a Zoom conversation with me. So again, that email is stephen at sjlincoln.com, sjlincoln.com slash book a call. Thanks for watching and we'll talk again soon.